this morning, like I said, we are in this series. Uh, we did this last year, so this is our second year coming back to this. We want to start each calendar year by looking at this prayer of Jesus. We just recited it together a few moments ago, all right? And this prayer is centered around uh, God, who is our Father. And so we, we pray to Him, we have access to Him. How amazing is that? And then there's this line here where it says, Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so as a church, to be able to start out and say, Lord, we want to hear from you. We want your will to be done. Truth be told, all right, the reality is, though I, would, I don't think I pray this, my heart's disposition is I want my will to be done. And my guess is for you, you want your will to be done. And the frustration and the angst is oftentimes when our will is blocked and yet the Lord Jesus invites us and says, will you trust me that his will is better for us? And so we want to start the year out by looking at this prayer together, centered around this phrase, and what would it look like for the kingdom of heaven to break into this reality? But anytime you use the word heaven, right, where it says, you know, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that can create all sorts of probably images, um, and oftentimes inaccurate images, all right? And so maybe your view of heaven is like one day you're just going to kind of leave this God-forsaken place. You're going to get zapped up into the heavens. Maybe you're issued a, a harp, all right, and you're just getting a cloud and you're floating around, all right, and, and you're like, man, I just got to sing and play the harp for all of eternity. That's not it, just so you know, right? That doesn't sound very appealing, to be honest. But um, sometimes we have those sort of images and almost this disembodied, you're just sort of this soul floating out there. We're going to see in the scriptures today the way the Christian story values the whole person, including the body, all right? And so it's not that view of just this disembodied soul floating around there. I mean, even like you read this in Philippians 3, Paul says this to a group of Christians in this, this town, this city of Philippi, but our citizenship, he says, is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. So there's an emphasis on the body there, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And what Paul is doing here, and this will help us understand this series and what we're called to as a church, he's writing to a group of people and he's borrowing language from the Roman culture. Philippi was a colony, that's sort of this outpost of Rome. So when the Romans would go in and they'd, they'd conquer a new city, all right, you now were a citizen of Rome and your job was to make that place where you inhabit, all right, to embody the values, the culture, the beliefs, the systems, all of that of Rome. And so Paul is saying, hey, you in Philippi, you're trying to make this place like Rome, but if you're a Christian, not only are you a citizen of this locale, which is Philippi, but you have a higher citizenship, and it's, you're part of God's kingdom, and your job now is not to make this place like Rome. Your job is to make this place more and more like heaven, more as God intended to be. The heavenly realm is where things are rightly ordered as God intended them. So when we pray this prayer, as we engage as a church, the idea here that we're looking at is what does it look like to bring a right ordering to this world? We won't be able to do it fully in our own strength. We know that, but God has invited us to participate. And the Hebrew word we see throughout the scriptures is this word mishpat, which is the word that we translate as justice. What would it look like for us to bring justice? And it's not just a court decision. The idea here is it's about a right ordering of things, in particular to those that are poor, that are broken, marginalized, the voiceless, the fatherless, to go to them. And it's not an optional thing. The idea of mishpat carries with it. It is the poor, it is the disadvantaged, it's the marginalized society. It is their right to have things rightly ordered. And our calling as a church is to enter into the broken places and to say, 
all right, what does it look like to make this place more like heaven? What does it look like to go to your coworker, your neighbor, your family member, to enter in and to bring a bit of the heavenly realm to bear in their life? Then we're doing mishpat. Then we're seeing the Lord Jesus' prayer begin to be answered through the working of his church, empowered by the Spirit. And so this is the call, Psalm 146, 7 to 9. Here's the word mishpat. He executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. He lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves those who live justly. The Lord watches over the immigrant, and he sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. And a prayer for us as a church is that we would not be in the camp of the wicked, but that we would be a righteous church that's clinging to Jesus and following him into the places where there's brokenness and there's messiness and there's places of injustice. And so this morning, as we're looking at different themes through the month of January, we're going to look this morning at the issue and the idea of justice and the sanctity of life. What does it look like for us to speak boldly with conviction, but also compassionately and courageously, all of those things wrapped up together for the rights of the unborn. What would it look like for us to be a church that steps into the places and speaks out about the great atrocity that is abortion, all right, that speaks out the truth about what God has to say about life? And I realize right now there's, there's like a palpable, like there's a tension, right? Because this is not something that is altogether easy to talk about. You gather a group of people together in a room, the reality is there's a wide divergence probably of beliefs and opinions and thoughts about this. There might be some of you that are cringing, like are we making this a political thing? This is not a political thing, this is a Jesus thing, and we need to talk about what Jesus said. And yet, I want you to know, and this is part of your story, I will address this more later as well, but we are so glad that you're here. There needs to be the church entering in, and what does it look like to offer grace and forgiveness and to come alongside and to explain what it is that we believe the Bible actually teaches. But we have to enter into this conversation, because to not enter into this would be to overlook one of the great injustices that has occurred in, in our lifetime and is currently occurring. I mean, look at how God identifies himself. And so, as I, I'll put that back up on the screen, but the cpwp.life, if you go to the message notes, we're gonna be in a variety of different texts this morning, all right? And so, you can go there, you'll find anything that's up on the screen will be there as well. But Psalm 68, five, look how the Lord identifies himself. Father of the fatherless, protector of widows, is God in his holy habitation. God is revealing to us a bit of his character, about how he cares, about how he's compassionate. Like you imagine, like you get invited somewhere to go and speak, right? And that somebody who's organizing the event, they might say to you, hey, tell me a little bit about yourself because the MC wants to know what to say in order to introduce you. And apparently for God, the way that he wants to be introduced is to be known as, here is God Almighty. He is a father to the fatherless. He's a protector of widows. This is who our God is. This is what our God does. This is what he revels in. He loves to care. He loves to meet the needs of the broken. And so as we think about this idea of justice, this mishpat, what does it look like to give all aspects of our world and our culture both in the womb and outside of them, the rights that they are due. Proverbs 31, eight to nine says this though, there's a particular call, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Will we as a church be a voice to speak up for those that cannot speak for themselves? What would that look like for the rights of all who are destitute? Speak up and judge fairly and defend the rights of the poor and the needy. 
That is our calling as a church. And it includes life outside of the womb, but it also includes life within the womb. And what do we do with that? How do we enter in? What does the Bible actually talk about? And so this morning, I want to look at three things. I want to look at the truth about life. I want to look, about, look at the tragedy that is abortion. And I want to talk about the triumph of grace. This so as we start here, let's look at what does the scripture actually have to say? Like the truth about life. I believe everybody here probably has some sort of opinion and thoughts and perspectives on things. And what is helpful for us is like, we don't, you don't need to hear my opinion or my thought. We need to go to the scriptures and we need to see what does the Bible actually have to say about this. Because at the end of the day, you might be like, I don't like what you're saying. And it's like, listen, your issue isn't with me, your issue is with God and take it up with him. But what does the Bible actually have to say? So let me read one particular passage. If you got a Bible, uh, you can turn to Psalm 139. If you're using one of the ones, there's some paperback on the back table there, paperback. Bibles, you can turn to page 579. We'll pay particular attention to verses 13 to 16, but just let me read this to give you a bit more of the full context. This is David writing these words, and he's talking about the power and the might of our God and how involved our God is in our lives. It says this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. I mean, just think about that for a moment. That the Lord himself, the God of the universe, he searched you, he knows you. He knows every single thing you brought in here this morning that's weighing on your minds. He knows your questions, your doubts, your frustration. He knows if you're feeling angry about this particular topic. He knows if you're feeling shame about, he knows everything. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and I cannot attain it. Verse seven, so where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, well, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness, though, is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. And then we get these words here, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And so the way this psalm starts out is on the one hand, the first few verses that we looked at is about God's omniscience, the fact that he knows everything, all right? He knows all of our thoughts. He knows every word before we would even speak it. And then it moves into from kind of seven to 12, like where shall I go from your spirit? Like we can try and get away, thinking we can get away from God. No, no, he's everywhere. He is omnipresent. And so the psalmist is laying out for us this grand, amazing, huge view of God who knows everything, that he is everywhere. And then we get this description of this God who has formed us. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Pay attention to that language there. It's not an accident that God chose for these words to be written about how he has designed, how he has put you and I together that his work in the womb, it's this language, this imagery of knitting together, 
all right? Now, I don't know how to knit anything, all right, but some of you that might be familiar with that, you know that is not an easy process. There's an attention to detail that, that is there. You are very involved. You are not an accident. The way that you've been designed, the gifts that you have, the personality that you have, the abilities, all of that is part of God's knitting you together. And so the psalmist responds this way. David's like, in light of this, I praise you, for I'm fearfully and I'm wonderfully made. Is that your disposition for one, even of just who you are as a person? That doesn't mean you don't have sin and brokenness like I do and you do, and there are things that we're like, oh, I wish that would change. But you also stop and give praise to your maker that he knitted you together. The abilities you have are not the same as the person sitting next to you or the person that you work with or your neighbor or that other family member, right? God has made you and it's wonderful. How often does it run through our mind? Oh, I wish I was this. True confession. You know, one of the things we did not too long ago as a staff, we're taking some personality profiles. We're going through that. And I read the list and I'm like, oh, well, I hate me. I want this category over here, right? Do you know what I functionally have said to God? You made a mistake. Why couldn't I have more of this personality? Why couldn't I have more of that? It's shaking my fist at the creator. Though I do it in a laughing sort of way, fundamentally what's going on is I don't know that I was wonderfully made. God, did you, did you skip something in the knitting together process? But the truth of the scriptures, I know God is intimately involved for every single child, every single person. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. And he says this, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Again, intricately woven the depths of the earth. Your eye saw my unformed substance. That idea of unformed substance, in the Hebrew word, gets translated as embryo, all right? And so you saw my unformed substance. You saw me even as an embryo. In your book was written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So what does the Bible say? The Bible says that God knit you together in your mother's womb. The Bible says that every single child that is inside a mother's womb right now is being knit together, like this active process that God is knitting together. We looked at this text last week, but we gotta keep coming back to this. Genesis 1, 26 to 7. The Bible also communicates this. When God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created what? He created humanity. He created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So this work that's happening in the womb is not just this amazing, just generic sort of creature. This is an image bearer. This is why... I, listen, hey, I love my, my dog. We've gone to great lengths to make sure that our dog uh, will, will stay alive as he's battled some health. Like, I'm all in on the pet, the category. Well, maybe not all pets, but at least dogs, right? So, like, hey, I'm all in on that. You post your pictures of you and your pets, and you're great. Love it. Keep it coming, right? I'm all for that. And yet, this afternoon, if my house burns down, it's burning down, and my wife, Heather, and my two girls, Sydney and McKinley, are in there, and our dog, Strider, guess who I'm seeing get out first? It's not the dog, right? And you should be like, you think that through for your own self, right? Like, you got pets? That is not the first thing to bring out of the house, all right? Now, you get everybody else out, you want to go back in there? Great, all right? So, um, why? Because the children are image bearers. Humanity, we are image bearers. The dog is amazing, but he's not an image bearer. 
The scriptures tell us this. Job chapter 10, verse 11, you clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. I mean, there's that idea again of knitting together. I love this, Jeremiah chapter one. The prophet Jeremiah, here's his story, all right? Talk about, maybe some of you are wrestling with like, hey, you know, I'm trying to figure out what to do with life. I wish I had a clearer calling. But Jeremiah says this. Now, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So even his calling as a prophet was being designed and woven together while he was yet in the womb. And then we get this amazing story. There's a number of different things we could look at. But how God works. Do you remember the, the story? All right, this is preceding the birth of Jesus. There's this woman, Elizabeth, and she's been barren for many years. And so she's told that she's going to have a child. And it's John, it's John the, it was John the Baptist. And here's the words that come to her. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, which is amazing. And then it says this, even from his mother's womb. So apparently the work of God, the work of the Spirit, is not just once the child emerges out into the world, all right, but is there in the womb. And so this is what happens a few verses later when Elizabeth goes to meet Mary, all right, and they have this, this moment, all right, because Mary is pregnant with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who, and when we're talking about this, think about it. We're gonna talk about what Jesus did in his life, his death, his resurrection, but Jesus was also an unborn child at one point. There in his mother's womb, being knit together, his father. And so when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, when they have this moment, the baby leaped into her womb. Like John gets really excited at this point. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, that there's something going on more than just simply this, this body that's being put together. There is a person and so let's talk about this though for a moment. Um, one of the things that'll be really, really helpful to think through is just, okay, like what, not only what does the Bible say, like what do people, scientists across the spectrum, and here's what is fascinating in studying this over the past couple of weeks, is this is not just those who would identify themselves as, oh, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a scientist who's a Christian, who's a follower of Jesus. It's across the board. The things that I'm gonna talk about here for a moment, all right, like you can go Google this, you can find this. There's a particular website, it's listed there. Uh, it's linked out in the, the message notes is, as well that you'll find this, all right? But all of this, this stuff, all right, these are things that are just accepted as true, We'll look at some even people that are very huge advocates for abortion and that they don't disagree with anything I'm about to say. So what does biology say? That human life, all right, let me just read through a few of these things. We'll look at just things that would characterize what's happening even through the first eight weeks, all right? And certainly there's more things here, but um, human life, most scientists now agree, begins at conception or fertilization. Like that is a fundamental truth that is no longer argued amongst people. All right, that's just accepted as a reality. At the moment of fertilization, a new and unique human being comes into existence with its own distinct genetic code, 23 chromosomes from the mother, 23 chromosomes from the father, and they combine to result in a brand new and totally unique genetic combina combination. At about eight days after conception, there's implantation. At about three weeks, the heart starts beating. Before that child is born, it will beat some 54 million times. Kidneys are preparing at this point for urine function. Eye bulges become visible. The brain is dividing into three sections. Between days 26 and 28, the arms are forming and become distinguishable between lower arm and upper arm. 
The embryo is now also beginning to produce the cells for producing the eggs or sperm necessary for their own reproductive future. How crazy is that? How be- that is our Lord knitting this child together. At four weeks, brain development rapidly speeds up. Between days 31 and 33, the brain size increases by 25%. By the 31st day, hand formation. Two days later, you get the feet. The retina of the eyes gain pigment and the nose starts to elevate. At five weeks, the permanent kidneys appear. External portions of the ear appears and the embryo doubles in size. Move into the realm of six weeks. The brain is emitting measurable brain impulses at this point. There are small bodily movements. The embryo responds to stimuli and may be able to feel pain at this point. Bone ossification has begun. Lips have appeared. All 20 teeth buds are now in the gums. The diaphragm has formed. The kidneys are producing urine and the stomach is producing gastric juices. Now we get to seven weeks. You can now see distinct leg movements. It's been observed that there's been hiccups in the womb at this point. The four-chambered heart has reached completion. Fingers and toes begin to separate. Knee joints are present. And there's the ability to smell. And at eight weeks, it moves from being called an embryo to a fetus. Every organ is present and in place. 90% of the structures found in an adult human can now be found in the fetus. They begin to show their hand dominance. If they're right-handed, the skin is beginning to thicken. All of these things, and we could go on and on. and could keep going week by week. But the Bible tells us that the Lord is knitting this child together. And science tells us that there is this beautiful thing that's taking place. And I understand that there's disagreement about what that actually is, but those facts are indisputable. And so we got to talk then about this. If this is the reality, how do we get to the point of what we want to talk about next, what we need to talk about next, which is the tragedy of abortion. That in America today, upwards of 2,500 children are killed, are put to death through the act of abortion. At some point in that stage, be it an embryo, be it a fetus, at some point there, 2,500. Maybe you've seen this statistic before, but just a way to kind of, uh, if you can see the, this graphic, all right? Um, there on the right represents how many lives were lost in World War II. This is not to minimize or to take anything away. Every life is precious. Every soldier that died, an image bearer. And so in World War II, the U.S. lost approximately 405,000 soldiers but we are up into the realm now, so that barely, almost fills one square there. But abortion, since the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973, we're pushing upwards of 60 million children that have died. That's the reality of the situation. It is a great injustice. It grieves the heart of God. It should grieve the hearts of us as followers of Jesus. The Lord has been knitting together these children and one by one they are terminated, they are killed, they are viewed as an inconvenience, they are viewed as something less than an image bearer. And so that is the popular mindset. In my study I came across a a particular website uh, this, this week and part of the, the angle, and I don't say this, this is not to like, oh, to, to shame them or to do this, but just to put it in perspective of the mindset that is out there that is seeking to normalize, is seeking to celebrate the reality of abortion. So a woman, a number of years ago, she started a, a website that's gained a lot of traction called Shout Your Abortion. 
And the reality is it's a space for women to come there and to talk about their abortion and what they've done and to celebrate it and to tell their story. In fact, when you go to the website, it says these words, amongst other things, abortion is normal. Our stories are ours to tell, and this is not a debate. Like, how did we get to this spot? But there is a battle here. There is a worldview. I want to show you in just a moment, if you think for a moment that like, well, here in the church, yeah, that's your perspective. You're bringing your religion into it. There is as much religion, as much worldview shaping that's going on on the other side. So let's each call it what it is and realize one religion and one worldview leads to life and the other leads to death. And the Lord Jesus is inviting us to embrace life. You see this image that is there, the woman who founded this website, one of the things that she and a company produced was, I don't know, eight or nine minute video um, where she brought in younger kids and it was entitled simply, meet someone who's had an abortion. Now, to meet somebody that's had an abortion, like to sit down and talk, we're all for that. It's the reality of anytime you gather in a room like this, that their stories are present, there's nothing wrong with that and having a conversation, but there was an angle. And she's sitting there talking with these young kids one by one, and it's seeking to not only celebrate it, just to normalize it, to make sure that this narrative continues to be out there. And so one by one, you see in this particular screenshot there, she's talking with these two young girls, I don't know, late elementary, maybe middle school age, and they begin to ask her, and they say, what was it like? And here were her words. There is a, there is a callousness, there is a unwillingness to acknowledge what was actually being knit together in her womb. So she talks about her abortion, and here were the words that she used. She said, you know, you go in and they just suck the pregnancy out. It was like a crappy dentist appointment or something. To put it in those terms, like you went in and lost a tooth and like, oh, then they just sucked this out, like that those are the same thing. No, a life was ended. You cannot equate that to what she would deem a crappy visit to the dentist. How did we get here? Like how in the world is this such a prevalent thing in our culture? What does the church actually believe and how do we step into these spaces? And I think what we have to see, as I alluded to a moment ago, there is a worldview at play. And so there are two things. There is a very real enemy. I don't know how else to put it to you, but there is, there is God and his kingdom and there is Satan and what he's seeking to build and they are at odds, all right? And you're either with Jesus or you're against him. It is binary. There's no sort of in-between, sort of mushy middle, gray area. You're either with King Jesus or you're not. And then you're living in rebellion and against his purposes in the world. And so in a conversation that Jesus is having with his followers, he begins to describe the enemy this way. So look at the language that's used here in John 8. You are of your father, he says, the devil, speaking to some of the the people that are opposing him, and your will is to do your father's desires. Okay, so what is this father like? What is this enemy like? He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he actually speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. This is the enemy. And I believe when we get into the realm of abortion, when we get into the realm of killing human life, when we're taking human life, when we're talking fundamentally about murder, what does that say? That is the domain of the enemy. Abortion, it's demonic. Like, I don't know how else to say it. And I, it pains me to say it. I feel that there's an uncomfortableness in that. But the truth of the scriptures is this, that the reality is that there's a very real enemy. And he wants to see this narrative propagated. He wants to see this continue. He wants to see it normalized. And the Lord Jesus is reminding us, no, no, no. 
That, he was a murderer from the beginning. That's his character. And he's a liar. When he speaks, he speaks lies. And so the way that we got to this place, I wanted, we're going to need to think here for a moment. I was reading through a book recently. I would commend to you. I'm making my way through. I'm not all the way through, but so far it's been very, very helpful. By a lady, Christian philosopher, thinker named Nancy Piercy. And in the book, it's called uh, Love Thy Body. She begins to talk about this lie of dualism. The enemy, one of his great tactics, one of his great lies that have been propagated and has been just full-on embraced in many ways in our culture, and it has implications beyond this issue, but it certainly applies to the issue of the sanctity of life and of abortion. She begins to talk about this, and so granted, this was over the course of 40 or 50 pages. Let me try and condense this down for sake of time, but she says this. You need to picture, all right, reality as a two-story house, all right? And so she says, oftentimes what ends up being painted is that there's a lower floor that we'll look at and then there's the upper floor. There's a lower story and there's an upper story, all right? And so I don't believe this represents ultimate reality. The, the, the Christian story is much more unified than this, but she says, here's what's happened. The lying of the enemy is to promote something called dualism. And so maybe a way to think about it is at the lower level of the lower story, you have things like what would be in, put in the category of like, well, that's science or that's facts. And so these are things that are public, objective, valid for everyone. So that's at the lower story. And she says the tactic of the enemy over the years has begun to separate these things out. So here's the lower story. And then at the upper story are things that you might put like theology, morality, values, all right? And it's private, it's subjective, it's relativistic. Summary would be this. That may be true for you, and that's great, but it's not true for me. I make my own truth, you make your own truth. Keep going, bro. I'm glad you're doing what, what you're doing, all right? That is the pervasive mindset. And so where this goes, all right, and I know there's a lot more that we could unpack here, but if you begin to view the world in this way, that there's this science facts at the lower story and then there's this upper story here of theology and values and all of that, what begins to happen, what has played out is where we end up here as it pertains to this issue is that at the lower story level, now you have the body and it's an expendable biological organism. You can look at the body, you can look at flesh and bones and heart and all that and be like, okay, yep, but... It splits then, and so at the upper story is personhood. This personhood theory is what has been developed. And it has moral and legal standing. So the distinction is here. You can be a body without being a person. Because if you can keep those separated, then you can expend, you can get rid of the body. It is just a nuisance. It's like a crappy visit to a dentist is what it can be regarded as. But the Christian story comes and says, no, that separation is never there. What did Jesus do? The God man, the God of the universe showed up in flesh and blood. And when he rose from the dead, he didn't come back as a disembodied spirit. He came back in the flesh. Shows us that our Lord values the body that he created. When he says you're made in his image, he's not just talking about some spiritual, ethereal part of you. He's talking about the whole of you. And then the new heavens, the new earth, you're going to get a resurrected body. That's where the story is heading. But the enemy wants us to believe that there's this dualism, that there's this distinction here. And there's all sorts of terrifying and scary things that happen when you begin to make this separation. So Piercy in her book says this, secular thought today assumes a body-person split with the body defined in the fact realm by empirical science or the lower story and the person defined in the values realm as the basis for the rights or the upper story. This dualism has created a fractured, fragmented view of the human being in which the body is treated as separate from the authentic self. I know that can be wordy and heady and philosophical, like what's happened, but 
fundamentally, this is what has played out. This is how we've gotten to where we are today. Let me read to you a few quotes that will just kind of put this in perspective where leading thinkers in the pro-abortion side of things, all right, will fully acknowledge that it's the taking of human life, but they don't acknowledge that it's actually a person. So let me just read to you a few of these things, all right? Some of their credentials are, are here. This is a past president of Planned Parenthood, Faye Waddleton. I think we have deluded ourselves into believing that people don't know that abortion is killing. So any pretense that abortion is not killing is a signal of our ambivalence, a signal that we cannot say yes, it actually kills a fetus. Again, this is not in the pro-life camp, all right? I'm reading to you quotes from those who are huge advocates for abortion. Anne Ferretti, who is the chief executive of the largest independent abortion business in the UK. We can accept that the embryo is a living thing in the fact that it has a beating heart, that it has its own genetic system within it. It's clearly human in the sense that it's not a gerbil, and we can recognize that it is human life. So what's happening here? It's at the realm, it's lower stories, all that they're willing to see. Peter Singer is a philosopher and a public abortion advocate. It is possible, he says, to give human being a precise meaning. We can use it as, an equivalent, as equivalent to member of the species Homo sapiens. Whether a being is a member of a given species is something that can be determined scientifically by an examination of the nature of the chromosomes in the cells of living organisms. In this sense, there's no doubt that from the first moments of its existence, an embryo conceived from human sperm and eggs is a human being. Not at six weeks, not at, eight, at the moment of conception. This is a pro-abortion advocate. One more, Bernard Nathanson, who co-founded one of the, the largest abortion advocacy groups and served as a medical director of a large abortion clinic, said this, there's simply no doubt that even the early embryo is a human being. All its genetic coding and all its features are indisputably human. As to being, there's no doubt that it exists, is alive, is self-directed, and is not the same being as the mother and is therefore a unified whole. I mean, they're basically going out and just saying, like, everything I read to you earlier about, like, what is biology, what does science actually say? They're like, yep, there it is. It's a human being. But there's the distinction that's being made, and this is the lie of the enemy. Who gets to qualify then as a person? I've read other quotes. I didn't put them in here, but some of these same people, what they begin advocating for, one guy would say, hey, what I recommend is you don't assign personhood until at least three days after the baby has been born because it's oftentimes three, up until three days later that you realize certain birth defects. So you've got a three-day window where you can kill it. That's what he would advocate for. The other guy, Peter Singer, would take it further and say, you know what? I actually think we should wait till about three years for the, for the child, all right? And at that point to determine whether it lives or whether it dies. This, hey, I don't agree with that, but he's at least playing it out. He's consistent in his logic. Like there isn't a person being born, it's just this human being. And the Bible knows nothing of that. The Bible says the Lord is knitting you together, that you're an image bearer, that the Lord has days and purposes and things assigned for you that he is putting together and he's crafting so who gets to qualify then as a person? Do you realize that the scary realm then that we're in here? Do you see how this leads to issues even outside of abortion? If somebody can say, oh yeah, I get that they're a human being. I'm not arguing that. They're just not a person. 
Maybe they're not aware of their own existence. Maybe, maybe they haven't developed enough intelligence. I mean, that puts it in a weird spot. I meet a lot of people, all right, on a continuum. I shake their hand, I get to know them, I hear a little bit of the story, I instantly know, yeah, that dude's smarter than me, all right? Does that mean like, all right, well, time for termination for Jamie because he doesn't let meet this sort of level. It kind of gets into that stuff. Like, who's to say what a person is? I'm not been given that right to declare it. Nobody, that is in the realm of God. And we begin acting like gods ourselves when we say, that's, yep, that's a human being, but it is not a person. Piercy in her book says this again, according to the body-person dichotomy, just being biologically part of the human race or the lower story is not morally relevant. Individuals must earn the status of personhood by meeting an additional set of criteria, the ability to make decisions or exercise self-awareness or plan for the future and so on, things in the upper story. Only those who meet these added conditions qualify as persons. This is the lie that has been propagated by the enemy. You can be a human being. That can be a human being in the womb, but it is not a person. It has to earn that. So I told you a few moments ago, sometimes this conversation comes up and it's like, well, there's the church and being religious and imposing religious beliefs. If we take for a moment that a religious belief is this sense of like, I'm seeking to develop a worldview, I've got to prove my worth and prove my value, there's nothing more frightening than this. I mean, this is religion, but it's a religion straight out of the pit of hell. It's a religion that says, you've got to prove. I mean, forget in the womb for a moment, just outside of the womb. I mean, that's how many of us are just exhausted and tired because we've, we've at some level bought into that mindset anyway. I gotta prove my existence. I gotta prove my worth. I gotta prove that I'm worthy of love. I've gotta prove that I'm worthy of acceptance. I've gotta get this job or make this money or have this relationship or buy this home or do these things. I never feel like I'm enough. I mean, that religious mindset will just kill us. And in this case, it literally is slaughtering people. And that's the reality of the situation. There's a religion, there's a belief, there's a worldview that leads to life and Jesus offers it. And there's a religion, there's a belief, there's a worldview that leads to death and it's what the enemy continues to promote and to propagate and to use against Jesus and his church and his kingdom being advanced. And so I wanna ask you this as, as we move to a conclusion though. It's interesting to think about, isn't it? Who in this case is being exclusive and who is actually being inclusive? I love what Psalm 8 says. Because in the exclusive camp, listen, that mindset, you, you gotta prove something. And the God of the Bible says, listen, I've given my common grace, even to those that don't recognize me, even those that don't worship me, even those that wanna go and be their own God and do their own thing, they still experience a measure of God's common grace. What is written here in Psalm 8 is true of every human being in the womb, outside of the womb, here's the reality. When I look at your heavens, the psalmist says, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? What is the, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and you've crowned him. So this is your story. This is every human story. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet. This is image bearer language. It's a reminder, you didn't earn anything but you've been bestowed great dignity and worth and value in the womb and outside of the womb. And this is true for every single person, regardless if they acknowledge Jesus or not. 
that there's this common grace that we all experience. And if we're going to talk about religion, there's either an exclusive, apparently only a few people are worthy of personhood, or there's this inclusive where it says you are, yes, the body, but also you as this unified whole. You are an image bearer. You've been crowned with glory. Do you see that? It's the most inclusive message I think Christianity gets a bad name. Think, oh, it's all exclusive and you're bringing your religion in. No, no, we're bringing our worldview in just like you are. But I think this one actually brings life. And so let's close with this. We have to see this, that the triumph, though, of God's grace. There is his common grace that we read about there in Psalm 8, his common grace that we've read in other scriptures this morning. But then there is this particular, there's this special grace that God offers to everyone that says, listen, I know the particulars of your story. Psalm 139 reminded us that God knows everything. You can't run from his presence. You can't run from your past. You can hide it from other people. You may never bring it to, you know, in a conversation, you may never bring it up, but the Lord knows every bit of our story and he's inviting us to experience his grace. Think about it for a moment. Psalm 8, who wrote it? Psalm 139, who wrote it? David. David was a man after God's own heart. Absolutely an amen to that. Worth emulating. At the same time, you know what David also did? An adulterer, committed murder. Like, that's his story as well and he's writing large sections of the Bible, that there's a story of grace that triumphs over and against anything that the enemy has sought to do. In any way that we've been part of the enemy's story, grace goes further. It reaches down into the darkness, wants to bring healing and redemption and true life. There's a triumph of grace. This is why the apostle Paul would say in 1 Timothy chapter one, he's reflecting on his own story because what was Paul known as as well? Before he was Paul, a follower of Jesus, he was one who was seeing that systematically Christians were killed. He was a murderer. He orchestrated it. He didn't just do it to one person. He organized it to happen to tons and tons of people. He wanted to put the church to death. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world, what? To save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience and as as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. So to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Isn't this crazy? This is the beginning of the letter and the dude just broke out into like this, this doxology, this exaltation. It's like he's got more things to write, but he's just got to stop and he's got to give God praise because it's like, I was a murderer of Jesus' church. I put people to death. I did not honor the image. I did not see people as image bearers. I did not follow God's lead and yet in his grace and his mercy he reached down and he rescued me and he said I'm going to use you I'm going to redeem your story what Paul is communicating through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is there's nobody that's beyond the grace of God unless there be any of us in here this morning that are feeling puffed up or we're feeling like oh yeah that's somebody else's story and I can't believe people would would do that go and read the Sermon on the Mount go to Matthew 5 and start reading what Jesus has to say about anger and how he equates the reality of like those of us that have gotten had this unrighteous anger that we've committed murder. Like so Jesus just levels the playing field and says we're all guilty. That's the reality. And yet our God comes and says there's this grace that's been offered so that he can showcase his strength that more of us might break into this doxology of the only God be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Would that be the cry of our church? And would we may, may we communicate that to a world that's in desperate need of it? You might've come in this morning 
Maybe you've never shared the particulars of your story. Maybe this abortion is part of your past and your story. Maybe you were the woman that got this done. Maybe you were the, the father. You were the guy that encouraged it or sat back idly and just said, well, that's just her thing to do, and you were passive. The Lord Jesus wants to meet you. He wants to bring grace and forgiveness. He wants to bring healing. Because our God is a God of grace. Luke 23, we'll close with this. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. These verses here tell me that I'm implicated, that I murdered the Son of God, that I put Jesus on that cross that I'm not innocent of this, that I was part of the shedding of innocent blood, and that's your story, and that's my story, and what does Jesus do in that moment? As he's being nailed to that tree, as people are mocking him, as, be, as he's being reviled by the people passing by, by the criminals on either side of him, Father, forgive them. That our God is a God of grace. Our God is a God who says, bring it to me, Ask for repentance, ask for healing. I want to meet you in those places. And so in what is a very difficult topic to navigate, the reality is God's grace goes further. God's grace is what we celebrate. This is what we have to see in this, that we've been rescued. If you're a follower of Jesus, your rap sheet said murderer, and yet Jesus has now made you whole. He's made you clean. He's invited you in. And the standing that he has as a righteous son has now been given to you. So we need to praise God for that. So as we continue in our worship service, I want to give you some space to just reflect, to take some time in prayer. Our prayer team during this time and through the rest of the service will be in the back corners. Maybe there's something that's heavy on your heart this morning, some conviction, something that you've carried for too long. Go and invite somebody to pray with you, to pray for you in this so take some time and ask the Lord, where are you leading me in repentance? And then remember the truth of the gospel that Jesus was declaring those words to you. Father, forgive them. He's offered his forgiveness. And would we resolve then as a church to be people that are committed to the sanctity of life, that we would pursue the sanctity of life in the womb and outside of the womb, that we would be involved, that we would move toward people, not in judgment and a posture of superiority and self-righteousness, but in a humble brokenness, full of grace to say, I've experienced God's grace and it's here for you as well. So I'll call us back in just a moment, but let me close us in prayer. Father, thank you for your love, your pursuit of us. Thank you that Jesus, you stepped into our story by being knit together in your mother's womb. And that you, Jesus, lived the life we were called to live, that you lived a sinless life, and that you were punished in our place. We give you praise for that reality. And God, I pray for us as a church that we would be agents of peace and of reconciliation and of healing. God, I pray for any here this morning where abortion is part of their story, Father. I thank you that in your grace you have them here on this morning, at this time, to hear about your extravagant, unending, all-pursuing grace. And I pray, God, that all of us would rest in that. So we love you, we need you. Pray that you would lead us now in this time of reflection, of repentance, of remembering the truths of the gospel. 
So God, as you hear our prayers, I pray that you would keep your glory and that we would experience just a great joy in knowing we belong to you. Hear our prayers now in Jesus' name, amen.